Our scripture reading today is from Acts 18, 1 to 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them because he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Debbie, for reading that passage for us this morning. Uh, I love this series that we're in. We only have one more sermon after this in the book of Acts, and then it's um, Palm Sunday, I believe. We're like, this, this spring is happening quickly, and then it's Easter. Um, but last week, we, we spent time with Paul in Athens. Uh, Acts chapter 18 opens with Paul leaving Athens for Corinth. And so what's been happening is we've been following Paul around in this uh, book since we started really at the beginning of this year, and he's been moving from city to city throughout the Roman Empire on these missionary journeys, and I want you to just imagine for a second that you are Paul's traveling companion, okay? And let's just do a little recap of how things have been going, okay? Uh, so every city that you visit is new to you. It's completely new. You've never been to it. So imagine yourself. You've done this before, I'm sure. Go to a city. You don't know anything about it. You've never been there. So every few weeks, you're doing that. Uh, and then every few weeks, as one of these cities begins to feel familiar to you, you have to leave. And then you go to another city that you don't know, and you're there, and you only know it by its reputation. And this pattern now has been going on for months. And so the question is, how are, how are you holding up? You doing okay? You doing okay on this, on this thing? Uh, maybe you're here today and you're feeling the weight of stress and you've kind of got this mixture of, of confusion and discouragement. I don't know how you walked in this morning. Um, but travel is stressful, right? To unfamiliar places is even more stressful. 
And then to travel to these unfamiliar places without a clear like plan once you're on the ground is even more stressful. Who even does that? Who even shows up in a new city and says, I don't know what I'm going to do, I'm, I'm here. Uh, you've been in that situation maybe where you, you don't even know what, where to go eat, right? And it's just kind of a lost feeling. This is what Paul has been doing. And his transition into Corinth has been, uh, is, is one of a few places in Scripture where we, where we start to see maybe some of the toll that this ministry is taking on him. So in Acts 17, we studied Paul in Athens. We saw that it was just one more in a string of difficult visits to new cities. So far, here's what's happened as you've been traveling with Paul. He's been persecuted. He's been imprisoned. He's been mocked. He's been beaten. He's been pursued. And if you're traveling with him at some point, you surely begin to think, maybe we should just go home, right? (laughs) The world hasn't been kind to Paul. And we can't know all that he was feeling, but we can rest assured that it is taking a toll on him. And so... When he writes later to the church in Corinth about this initial visit that we just read about today, and we read about that in 1 Corinthians, he writes that letter with a certain kind of of resignation. Uh, In his tone, in this really familiar passage from 1 Corinthians 2, he says this, I decided to know nothing while I was among you except for Christ and him crucified. Are you familiar with that passage? I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And then the very next thing he says is he says, and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. What's the context behind that? Because I know for most of my life as a Christian who has been familiar with the I've resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, there's kind of a triumphant tone to that passage, but I wonder about that. I wonder if it was said in a spirit of triumph, and I wonder if it was said more in a posture of weakness. In fact, we know it was said more in a posture of weakness, because that's how he says it. He says, I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. What's the context behind that? Well, it's possible that this is a commentary on Paul's time in Athens, which we read about last week when he was preaching to the philosophers of the Areopagus, because there he labored to connect to pagan people on their level. And and so he took a more philosophical approach in his presentation of the gospel than he usually does. And when you look at the results of what happens, at least the results of what we're given in Scripture, the results were meager. And so when he resolves to know nothing but Christ in him crucified, this may well be a window into his mindset, a way of resolving to keep his approach simple, to keep his approach focused. As for being with them in weakness and fear and much trembling, this too is probably speaking to the state that he was in. Weak because he was physically and emotionally and spiritually and mentally beat up when he enters Corinth. And in fear and much trembling because he had little reason to think that Corinth 
would bring any other response than what he had been getting everywhere else that he had been. Paul here is a threadbare soul held aloft by the Spirit of God. And life can be like this, where it feels like it's kind of one after another after another of I pour myself into something for the glory of God and I can't really measure what's coming out of that. And yet, we go on. Corinth, imagine Corinth being the place where you would kind of wash up on the shores, weary, just struggling, and Corinth is the place. Corinth was a strategic port city on an isthmus. I defy anybody to come up here and say that word better than the way I just said it. (laughs) It's a bunch of consonants. That's all that word is. It's a bunch of consonants. But it's this strategic port on an isthmus uh, accessed in every direction. The port cities were, were usually commercial. They were usually cosmopolitan. They were usually populated by people from all over the world because people would come from all over and they would stop there and many would just go ahead and stay. As a result of this, these port cities were often also very immoral places. And Corinth fit this mold, and we know this because it boasted a huge temple to Aphrodite, uh, the goddess of love, and in that temple there were 10,000 temple prostitutes. It was, in fact, so immoral, Corinth, that the word Corinthian became a euphemism for an immoral person no matter where they were from. That guy's a Corinthian. And so the whiplash, right, of Paul coming from the intellectualism of Athens to Vegas, basically. He moves from this city that's driven by intellectualism to a place that's driven by materialism and immorality and a blend of whatever religious ideas have blown in. And so when he arrives here, the weary apostle braces himself for the city. And he also picks up his trade. And here we have a passage of scripture that gets into the the nobility of work. I love that Josiah is here this morning helping lead the service because it's an emphasis of ours, that our work is sacred. And here we see it. We have Paul taking up his trade of tent making. And it leads us into, in the context, something that I think everybody in this room has wrestled with and maybe some of us are right in the middle of. And it's this, it's that rarely life unfolds the way we expect it to. And if we don't bend with it, we're going to break. And the pages of scripture are laced with the prayers and cries of desperate people wanting to know, God, what are you doing? What are you doing in me? What are you doing through me? Job wanted to know this. Job said in chapter 19, how long will you torment me? And break me into pieces with words. That's a prayer to the Lord. The psalmist begged, why are you sleeping, O God? Rouse yourself. David cried out, how long will you hide your face from me? If I can get a little personal for a minute. I woke woke up this morning off, down. I was discouraged, and I don't know why. I might have had a bad dream, but I just woke up, I woke up down, and I couldn't shake it. I got here, I get here pretty early in the morning on Sundays, and 
just felt like I was kind of slogging into this morning. And so I texted my wife and I said, I'm, I'm on the struggle bus here this morning. Would, would, would you just tell me some things that are true? And I have a good wife. And she just texted me scripture. Because that's who she is and how she is. But there's scripture that's meant to speak to our discouragement. And it's amazing how perfect it was for me. But discouragement is, it's something that for Christians we can think, it's, if, if I'm in a relationship with Jesus, it's not supposed to be this way. Well, discouragement's not only common for believers, but God lets the prayers of the bewildered find a place in his holy word from, from Job and from the Psalms. We see these things. And so are you struggling right now with where God has you? When you begin to do the math on Paul's recent trials and you put together that he's, he's struggled everywhere he's gone, he's been rejected, he's been opposed, and he's only really seen meager results in his efforts, and now he's traveling alone. He doesn't even have his traveling companions with him anymore, and apparently he doesn't have any money, and you have to wonder, is he struggling? Now, we can't know Paul's emotional life, but one thing we can know is that his present situation just couldn't be helped. His opposition was a direct result of him doing the thing that God had called him to do. And so he was on mission. He was proclaiming Christ. His solitude, the reason that he was alone, was because he'd seen some success in Berea, which required his companions, Timothy and Silas, to stay back and to disciple the new believers there. And that was the right thing for them to do. So Timothy and Silas stayed back to help. Still, what it means is Paul would enter Corinth not only looking to persuade people that Jesus was the Christ, but he also came to Corinth looking for work. As a rabbi, back in those days, rabbis were required to have a trade something that they could do when they weren't being a rabbi. And Paul would have been required to know a trade, and it turns out his was tent making. And so what did he do in Corinth? He looked for other people in his trade. And that is where he found Aquila and his wife Priscilla, who were in Corinth. And the reason they were in Corinth was because Claudius had driven all the Jews out of Rome. And so Paul stayed with them, and he worked making tents. And on the Sabbath, he reasoned for Christ in the synagogue. Now, Often the deepest discouragement comes when it comes to work is wanting something that simply isn't available to us. Where we work a job maybe and we think, this isn't what I'm on earth to do, I don't really want to do this. Have you ever been pulled between a sense of calling and a need for income? Usually the need for income wins the day, doesn't it? Have you ever felt that in taking the job, you were choosing the less spiritual option. Let Paul the tent maker shepherd you here. Sometimes the least spiritual thing you can do is let the basic needs of yourself and your family go unmet because you feel called to something other 
than the employment that is available to you. Sometimes the least spiritual thing you can do is refuse to work because you think there's something bigger that God is calling you to and you're waiting for it. Not only is there no shame in taking a job when you need one, there is wisdom in learning a trade that you can work at when you find yourself between things. You're looking at a landscaper. That's my trade. I was a landscaper before I was a pastor. If something terrible happened and I couldn't be a pastor anymore, I have a job I can do. Maybe rusty at it, but I can get there. But you may have a job right now that you hate, right? Or you may find yourself working somewhere that you swore you would never work or doing a job that you swore you would never do. And the encouragement from watching Paul lean into tent making is lean into that work, lean into that experience. Those jobs aren't going to be forever, but you're learning how to work. (laughs) And you're also learning how work works. So lean into that. Hope will break through. It'll break through. You don't have a lot of control necessarily over when, but it will. Eventually, Silas and Timothy show up again. They'd been in Berea. They'd been working with the new church there. And when they finally rejoin Paul in Corinth, they come and they have a gift. What is the gift? It's a financial gift. What's the significance of the financial gift? Well, it apparently was gathered from the believers in Macedonia and what that gift did. We read about that in 2 Corinthians 11. But what this gift did is it liberated Paul to now devote himself fully to preaching, specifically identifying the historical Jesus as the long-expected Messiah, the Christ. And so that's what he did. And he did what he normally would do is he went to the synagogue first. The Jews in the synagogue reviled him, the passage says, something that he had been through many, many times before. But here, Paul responds differently than normal. And here he protests their opposition saying, your blood be on your own heads, I'm going to go to the Gentiles from now on. Shaking out his garment so not a speck of the dust from the synagogue would leave with him. Is that the end of the story for Paul's ministry in the synagogue there in Corinth? Well, you, you read the passage. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he's a, he's a master with, with detail, and he gives, these careful deta- he gives careful attention to the political and the geographical specifics, which help us to imagine the scene of what's going on here with his words. And here what he does is he gives us another little detail that enriches this account. He says that Paul moved on from the public synagogue of the Jews to the private home of Titius Justice, a Gentile, who, Luke notes lived just next door to the synagogue. I love that. I mean, that's shrewd. How is that shrewd? Well, now he's in a position where his ministry to the synagogue is not in the temple floor, but it's across the back fence. This move of moving into this, in this home next door to the synagogue is confirmed and affirmed in, in two primary ways that we see in the text. The first is that many Corinthians believed in Jesus, including Crispus, who was the ruler of said synagogue. 
This makes me wonder if, if Paul found success talking over the synagogue's backyard fence that he didn't find in the synagogue itself. This is a metaphor. You're right. You're, you're tracking with me. I mean, it's not a metaphor in the passage, but there's a metaphor for us. And that is this. When you want someone to hear you, both your words and the context in which you speak them shape how a person will hear you. Right? Sometimes a change of setting makes a world of difference. But regardless, what Paul longed for when he arrived in Corinth was beginning to happen. Hope was breaking into the city and into the synagogue. And the church was growing. And Paul was now fully devoted to shepherding it. And I just have to think he would have known a renewed sense of joy. And it would be a renewed sense of joy that will stay between Paul and the Lord because nothing is mentioned of it directly. But I've been in spots like that where I felt like it was an impossible season and something broke through, something changed, something lifted. And you could breathe. And things kind of started to feel like momentum, like you started to have the wind at your sails again. And it's a sacred thing when you know that the Lord's hand is in that. And so encouraging. The second event uh, that affirmed Paul's ministry. So the first is that Corinthians believed in Christ. The second thing that affirmed Paul's ministry in Corinth was in the form of a word from Jesus himself. It, It should stand out to us that here in the book of Acts, Jesus speaks. Because the vast majority of Jesus speaking is in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is post-ascension Jesus, and he speaks to Paul. He gives him a word. He says, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will harm you, because I have many in this city who are my people. What does that mean? He's the first evangelist there. What does it mean that the Lord has people in the city who are his? Well, one of the things that's going on here is this ministry of proclaiming Christ is not a call to blind faith, but it's a call to an informed faith that God is and already has been at work, that God has a plan. He has a plan both for Paul and he has a plan for Corinth. John Stott wrote about this, this, uh, this phrase that I have many people in this city. Here's what he says about it. I love this. He says, the expression, I have many people in this city, is reminiscent of the good shepherd's statement that he had other sheep, not of this pen, which was a reference to Israel, meaning he had other sheep who were Gentiles. They had not yet believed in him, Stott said, but they would do so because already, according to his purpose, they belong to him. And this is the greatest of all encouragements to an evangelist. End quote. That encouragement is this, is that the Lord will use me and he'll use you to bear witness to him. But before you even open your mouth, he's at work. And in terms of drawing hearts to the Lord, that is exclusively, unilaterally his job. 
He uses us. He's a God of means, but he doesn't need us. He doesn't depend on us. We are never in a position where if we mess up, God will fail to redeem somebody. Never. So Paul was strengthened enough there to remain in Corinth, and he stayed there for a year and a half doing what he was called to do, teaching the Corinthians about the word of God. You never know when a breakthrough is going to happen in your life. You never know when a season of struggle is going to give way to a season of resolution. And you may have seasons where you're working at a trade, where you're, you're tent making and wishing that you were free to do something else. Some of you may even secretly feel this way sometimes about parenting uh, and feel selfish and feel guilty about that. Listen, parenting is hard. Work is hard. Life is hard. And our bandwidth can fill up quickly and we can quickly become discouraged. No that the Lord is always at work in ways you can see sometimes, but he's always at work in ways that you can't see. And so in those times of trouble and discouragement, may the Lord teach your heart how to focus your resolve on Christ and him crucified. And may that be enough. Let me pray. Father, it is reassuring to us in your word to see places where you have been at work even when everyone else was confused and unsure and maybe weary and discouraged. You're faithful, and you're faithful over time. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We ask that you would uh, take these truths and cause them to grow into a deepening faith in our hearts. And, uh, Lord, would you give us a a very, uh, very sensitive posture towards your work and your speaking in our lives, uh, Father, and give us a, a humility to receive from you both seasons of difficulty and uh, seasons where we feel like we have the wind at our backs, knowing that you will always do what it is that you set out to do, and you are always good. And so we thank you for this. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.